Good morning. Well, as was already said, my name is Ben. Uh, if you were not here the last time I preached, about a month ago, um, let me fill you in on something you might have missed out on. My wife's name is Alana. I pastor a church called New City in Orlando, and she's not with us this morning because she works in City Kids, our children's ministry. So lest you think this is an alternate universe, uh, it gets weirder. Last time I was here, um, I followed Ben back to their house for a delicious lunch with their family, and when he got into his truck, his Nissan, silver Nissan Frontier pickup truck, I realized we drove the exact same pickup truck. Uh, up until about a month ago when I traded in uh, for an SUV because I have a child now. So uh, with that, I want, to, I want to invite you into something I've been wrestling with through this whole semester, which is the book of, the book of Genesis, um, particularly the story of Abraham, the man of faith. Uh, we've been preaching through Genesis at our new city, and so um, I'm looking forward to bringing the Word of God to you this morning from Genesis 18. At this point, I'd invite you now, if you would, if you're able, to stand for the hearing and the reading of God's word this morning from Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis 18. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord says, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful that you have spoken. 
that you are a God who discloses yourself to us, who reveals yourself to us in the words of Scripture and in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would accompany these words with power, that you would delight to make them effective in working in our hearts and drawing our eyes to Jesus, our joy, our Savior, our Lord. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's a story about a new bar being built in the town, a small town of Mount Vernon, Texas. And a local Baptist church, not wanting this bar to open, started a prayer campaign to block it from opening. Construction progressed right up until the week before opening when a bolt of lightning struck the bar and burnt it to the ground. The church people were rather pleased with themselves until the bar owner sued the church on the grounds that they were ultimately responsible for the demise of his building. Quote, either through direct or indirect actions or means. The church staunchly denied all responsibility or any connection to the building's demise in its reply to the court. Now, as the judge looked over the paperwork at the hearing, he commented, he said, listen, I don't know how I'm going to decide this case. It appears that we have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and a congregation who does not. Now, this story is likely apocryphal. In other words, I don't know that it's true, but uh, it's a good story to illustrate something, a type of prayer called intercessory prayer, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, to intercede means to come in between, and so someone who is an intercessor is a person who steps in between God on behalf of another. Now, we are in a time when the church in our society needs to step in and mind the gap for our city, for our nation, for the world. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this text, Genesis 18, and I want to name seven aspects of an intercessor. Seven aspects of an intercessor. Now, if you need to, uh, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and get it out in front of you if you can. Pull it up online if you must. Uh, and go ahead and turn to Genesis 18. You're going to need the text in front of you as we walk through it together. So here's the first of the seven aspects of an intercessor. The first one is that intercessors are friends of God. Intercessors are friends of God. Verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Notice what's happening here. The Lord is having a little conference with himself. He's having a conversation with himself. Uh, a soliloquy is what we would put it in old terms. And, and he's talking to himself and he's deciding, should I disclose to Abraham? Should I tell him what's about to happen? Now his reasons why he might do that are here in verse 18. The first one is that Abraham was called to stand with and for the world as the Lord's chosen channel of blessing. But in verse 19, he, get, he says, this is the second reason why he might tell Abraham what he's about to do. He says, I have chosen him. That word chosen is important. It's the language of intimacy. If you know Genesis 4, there's, uh, the, the word shows up there again when it says that Adam knew Eve and it's a boy. Congratulations. So we're talking about a, a word of intimacy here that the Lord chose him. And so what I want you to hear me say is that Abraham was invited into the confidence of God as his friend. Now, Many of you interact with your friends this way. If you uh, have a big announcement or maybe you've got a, uh, a pregnancy or, or maybe you've got a, a burdening decision that you have or your heart's just 
burdened for some other reason, you usually go to your friends. Your friends know about these things first, right? And so Abraham and the Lord have a friendship. Abraham's become the friend of God. He was invited in, befriended into the Lord's privacy. If you don't believe me, listen to the words of Jesus in John 15. He says this, no longer do I call you servants. Why not? Why don't you call us servants anymore, Jesus? For the servant does not know what his master is doing. He goes on, he says this, but I have called you friends. Why? Why not servants? Why now friends? For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I've disclosed to you. I've invited you into the privacy of my inner world. This is what friends do. That's what's happening here with Abraham in our text. This is the peculiar privilege of the church. If you belong to Jesus, God Almighty takes your opinion into account as he runs the world. What else could this text mean? What else could intercessory prayer be? That is astounding in its implications. As friends of God, belonging to Jesus, he invites us in. But as with every right, there's a corresponding responsibility. If God really does give us these credentials, these credentials that we have to come before him and to have access, this approachability comes with a responsibility to to take up God's ear as his friends and speak to him on behalf of our world. When I was growing up, I remember going to my friends and I'd be like, hey, listen, can you ask your mom if I can have another popsicle? Why? Because my friend had access to his mother that I didn't have. And so with all access comes an assignment. And so intercessors are friends of God. Number two, intercessors teach the way of the Lord. Intercessors teach the way of the Lord. Look at verse 19 with me. For I have chosen him that, now this is a purpose statement right here, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Far from peripheral. The call to do justice is core to walking with the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus. You see that in the text here. That's why Abraham was chosen, to teach him to command his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Righteousness is that personal integrity that's willing to disadvantage myself for the advantage of others. That's what righteousness is. Justice, I can't find a better definition than from John Calvin, one of the the fathers of our tradition of faith. He says this, justice is to stretch forth the hand to the miserable and the oppressed, to vindicate righteous causes, and to guard the weak from being unjustly injured. This is your call if you follow Jesus, to do righteousness and justice. And so, but notice that the call of Abraham is actually a call to be a good father, You see, the name Abraham means a father of multitude. Generations are in view. Multiplication is in mind. Abraham is not just to do righteousness and justice himself, but to teach his children, to command them to do it as well. Here is God's parenting plan. Command your kids to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. John Calvin preached a sermon on this one verse, verse 19, and he called it a father's main responsibility. Now, to lead in some organizations, you have to have credentials or degrees or experience or talents. But but to lead in the church of Jesus Christ, listen, you have to manage your own household well. You disqualify yourself from leading in Jesus' church if you cannot manage your own household well. 
um, that at least means to teach your children to do righteousness and justice. What does this mean? What kind of organization ought the church be if that is a qualification to be a leader? That's a good question that you want to ask about the the nature of what the church really is. And so listen, we all know that life, this kind of way of life is more caught than taught. So let me ask you, do your children see an active concern for the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized in your life? Do they see that? That's a question you want to be asking. Do they see you doing righteousness and justice? I was having a conversation recently with a friend, uh, this was a few months ago, about the current societal upheaval that we're in. And and a friend of mine was just simply asking, hey, what do you think I can do? (laughs) Like, I'm not that big of a deal. Like, what what small thing, what, what can I do to make a difference? I said, you could start by loving the Lord your God with all of yourself, loving your neighbor as yourself, including and especially your enemies, and then teaching your children to do the same. Now, you might seem, think that that sounds simplistic. It's pretty simple. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, especially your enemy, and teach others to do the same. But far from simplistic, look at the text. Look at the role that righteousness plays in preserving Sodom. Sodom was destroyed because there weren't ten righteous people in the city. In other words, another way to put that is, had there been ten righteous people in the city of Sodom, it would not have been leveled. But this is curious because Lot was there. Abraham's nephew. Do you remember the story up to this point? Lot is Abraham's nephew. He is in Sodom. And in Genesis 13, we read that that Lot's household is so big that both Abraham and his household and Lot and his household, they can't remain in the same location because it's too taxing on the land. In other words, what I'm trying to say is Lot had more people than 10 in his household. It wasn't just his wife and two daughters, as we read later in Genesis. He had a, a large group of people there. But not 10 of them, not even 10 of them were righteous. In other words, Lot failed miserably at his calling to teach the way of the Lord by commanding his children, his household, to do righteousness and justice, and Sodom paid the consequences. It was catastrophic for the city that Sot lived in. So being a righteous family is not a small thing. Loving the Lord your God with all of yourself and your neighbor as yourself is not a small thing. So teach your children this. It is the salt that flavors and preserves our society. So I want to ask you again. Do your children hear you praying for your enemies? Do they hear you praying for those on the other side of the aisle or the spectrum or the railroad tracks? Do they hear you praying for these people? I know of Christian schools in my part of town in Orlando that had to suspend kids for getting into political fights. This is a Christian school. They got fights over politics. Where did they learn that from? They're good Christian families. It ought not be so among you, brothers and sisters. And, and, and so if you're, if you're not buying this, listen, if Abraham's household would have tuned in on his prayers, they would have heard him praying for the iconically evil city of Sodom. It doesn't get more horrendous than Sodom. It becomes an icon of debauched and debased cities, and Abraham prayed for them, so we have no excuse to denigrate those with whom we disagree. A friend of mine named Eric lives in the inner city in Orlando, a neighborhood called Paramore, and every morning he wakes up at six o'clock, and he goes for a walk on the streets 
prays for his, his neighborhood, prays for his neighbors, his houses, the houses, the people that live in them by name. Eventually, one of his sons learned that this is what dad does really early in the morning. So he got up early in the morning and asked, can I come with you? So he said, yeah, of course. So, so here's my friend Eric and his son walking through a not-so-great part of town praying for their neighborhood. And, and then the other boys actually found out that, that this son got to go do that. And so it became competitive. Who gets to go with dad this morning and pray for their neighborhood? You see, he's modeling, he's teaching his children. It's more caught than taught. How do you love a city? And so do you dream of having a family, leaving a legacy of Jesus' followers? Does that captivate your imagination? Do you want that? If so, pray for it. Teach it. Don't be passive here. Step up. Lean in. Make this happen. Now, if you're in the room and you're single and celibate and you're like, hey, this doesn't apply to me. Oh, it does. Two men, Jesus of Nazareth and Paul the Apostle, were both single and celibate. And they spoke about the people, their children that they had brought to know the Lord, who they had raised up, who they sent out and fathered and mothered them like parents. Because another word for what I'm talking about is simply discipleship. To glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. That's the statement I read on the screen earlier. This is what we're talking about. Number three intercessors have confidence in God's character. They have confidence in God's character. Look at verse 22 with me. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Another translation of this reads, Abraham stood in God's path blocking his way. There's a deliberateness of Abraham. He sees where the Lord is going, what he's about to do, and it says, verse 23, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You see, Abraham both questions and appeals to the justice of God. That's what he's doing in this story. I know of parents who have raised their kids, um, and now their children are at a point where they call them out, their parents, they call them out on the very things they tell them not to do. You know, none of you, okay, that's good. Uh, but, but those parents will say to me, they'll say, listen, I've created a monster. <laughs> well, the Lord has created a monster with Abraham here. The Lord's the one who taught him, who fathered him into a love for justice, and now Abraham is holding the Lord accountable, saying, listen, far be it from you. You are the judge of all the earth. Shall not you do what is just? The Lord has created a monster because Abraham knows that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And so intercessors know their God. They know his character and his promises because God delights to be held accountable for who he is and what he said he will do. The great reformer Martin Luther had a friend named Philip Melanchthon. And Philip fell gravely ill. And so Luther interceded for him with great audacity. And this is what he said to the Lord about his prayer. He said, I attacked God with his own weapons, quoting from Scripture all the promises I could remember, that prayers should be granted and said that he must grant my prayer if I was henceforth to put faith in his promises. That's intercessory prayer. Number four, intercessors persevere through weakness. Look at verse 27 with me. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. 
Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Do you notice the perseverance? He presses his case from 50 all the way down to 10. Now, Ephesians 6 tells us that there are a lot of different types of prayer, different kinds of prayer. Um, but I think you can bucket them all into two categories. One, you have prayer that is resting. And then two, you have prayer that is wrestling. Intercessory prayer is, is a wrestling form of prayer. The older saints would have said that we must travail in prayer before we can prevail in prayer. This is the way that it's talked about. And so there's a wrestling that happens here. But far from Abraham using his dust and ashes frame as an excuse to give up, he knows that the Lord has a soft spot for the humble, for the weak, for the needy. Psalm 103 puts it this way. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Listen, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The fact that we are dust, the fact that we are weak and needy and inadequate to this task actually motivates the compassion of a father. And so Abraham appeals to that because we must persevere through weakness. We must persevere through weakness. The, the 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody had a list of 100 names of people that did not know Jesus that he carried around in his pocket everywhere. And whenever one of those people would come to know Jesus, he would just kind of tick their name off the list. One after another until he was dead, all, I'm sorry, 96 out of the 100 people had come to know Jesus. Which I'm thinking, that's awesome, but kind of disappointing, right? <laughs> like four shy. I mean, it's an A, that's great, 96 out of 100, but, but four shy. But at his funeral, those remaining four gave their life to Christ to knock off all 100 out of 100 people. Maybe you're like me and you have people that you know who you have prayed for earnestly over time, but your heart hurts too much with the burden of it and so you've kind of given up. I've got friends who I know who have walked away from Jesus and for years of fasting and tears and prayer, I've asked God to bring them back. And, and in my weakest moments, I, I almost didn't even pray at all. Sometimes I didn't pray at all. And I've seen some of those people come back, and I'm convinced from that that those prayers out of your weakness may actually be the most powerful. Because you're not mustering anything up. And so we press on and we persevere for the sake of love. Because in verse, or I'm sorry, number five is that intercessors risk for love of their neighbor. Intercessors risk for love of their neighbor. Look at verse 30 with me. Then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. You see, Abraham recognizes both the necessity and the absurdity of telling God what to do. But he's willing to risk for love of Sodom. There's both perseverance and reverence. Abraham is not trifling with God. He says, oh, let not the Lord be angry. He's pushing his luck, if you will. But intercessors love their neighbors for God's sake. They love the image of God in them. They recognize that they are implicated with them, that we all hang together, that judgment on the wicked has consequences for the righteous. And so Abraham's calling and our calling is a vocation for the sake of others. And so we risk for love of neighbor. 
One author named Richard Foster puts it like this. If we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than it is within our power to give them. And this will lead us to prayer. Intercession is a way of loving others. So Abraham pleads for Sodom. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Paul mourned for the lost Jews. Are you burdened with the love? Are you burdened with love for the plight of the people of Palm Bay? Does it break your heart when you consider the imminent danger that they are in far from Christ? A few weeks ago, I had a friend that was tragically, unexpectedly killed in a car accident who is my age, and it reminded me in a fresh way that life is but a breath. It's sobering. And so we take that seriously, and out of love for our neighbors, we intercede. Number six, intercessors move the hand that moves the world. Intercessors move the hand that moves the world. Look at verse 32. Then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. The Lord answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. It's important not to miss this. If you know the story, you know that Sodom was destroyed. But it's not because Abraham was unsuccessful. In fact, he pleaded with God and moved God all the way down to ten people. And so if, and that's a big word, if ten righteous people had been found, Sodom would have been spared. Because God really does answer the prayers of his people. He really did hear Abraham's prayer. One author named Pete Gregg puts it this way, the hinge of human history is the bended knee. Your prayers have power with God. Your prayers move the hand that moves the world. It's not because you twist God's arm. It's because you're able to move his hand because you can move his heart. I love what Alana said about her, her children coming up to her and how she delights to hear them speak to her. Your heavenly father loves to hear your voice. His heart is moved and then his hand is moved by you coming before him and pleading with him on behalf of others. And so we press our luck. We trust that within the covenant that we're in with God, within that covenant, God invites complaint. Hey, I'm not so keen on how you're ruling the world today, Lord. You're invited in. Another author says it this way, history belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. If this is so, then intercession, far from being an escape from action, is a means of focusing for action and of creating action. By means of our intercessions, we veritably cast fire upon the earth and trumpet the future into being. Powerful words. So, I hope that you're feeling two things right now. I'm hoping that you are getting a vision for the, the power and the priority of intercession. I also hope that you're feeling the gravity of your neglect of this calling. Oh, both of those are kind of coming home because if, if prayer is the chief exercise of faith, then prayerlessness is the chief exercise of unbelief. It is practical atheism. Listen, if Abraham doesn't intercede from, for Sodom, who will? If you don't intercede for your city, who will? If the church doesn't pray, who will? If you're not bringing your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends and family before God, who will? Who else has this calling but us, we who are the friends of God, who are the very children of God, and with those rights come corresponding responsibilities. 
I listened to a global prayer leader say, this was right kind of in the midst of the election craziness that went down, and, and he said this, research is showing that the church prayer meeting is all but dead in America. Yet, 1 Timothy 2 teaches us to pray for those in authority. And he said, in other words, and he's a British man, in other words, you get the leaders you pray for. He said, I'm going to let that linger there for a moment, speaking to a largely American audience. And so listen, if you're frustrated about how political things go in our nation, it's easy to blame it on the left or the right or the Democrats or the Republicans. It's harder to say, I take responsibility because God has given me a privileged position. He's given me his ear to intercede on behalf of this nation, and I've neglected it. Some of the blame goes on the church of Jesus Christ. And so listen, like Sodom, God is offering an intrusion of grace for our city, for our nation. But we fail at our post. We don't take up our calling, our responsibility. So how do we rouse ourselves from apathy, from lethargy? How do we overcome our unbelief? How do we reprioritize our role as intercessors with everything else we have going on? How do we repent of our practical atheism? Well, seventh and finally, intercessors need intercession. Intercessors need intercession. Hebrews 7 says that Jesus lives to intercede. That's not past tense, not lived, but present tense, right here, right now. If you were to ask the question, what is Jesus up to right now? The answer would be, he's interceding for you. He's praying for you. Hebrews 9.24 says that Jesus' resurrection, his death and resurrection was so that now, in this very moment, he could appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus stands with scars before his Father for us. The way that John Calvin put it is, Jesus remained silent before Pilate so that ever after he might speak for us. Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Listen to the logic of this. More than that. So you've got the death of Jesus. It says, more than that, who was raised, who indeed is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's what Romans 8, so so you see the kind of the movement of it. Jesus died, he was raised, he ascended, and now he's interceding for us. It's all building towards this, this great drama of redemption that we sing about. And so the same compassion that moved Jesus' heart to become human for us and die for us is burning in his heart as he intercedes for us. Jesus is praying for you right now. Jesus is praying for you when you give up praying to him. Jesus is interceding for you. He never neglects his intercession. Jesus is our moment-by-moment mediator, not just there and then on the cross, but here and now on the throne. Jesus is praying for you. I want you to consider something. What if you heard Jesus praying aloud for you by name in the other room? What would that do for you? Like, what if you heard him weeping over your traumas? What if you heard, uh, what if in your sin you heard him not sarcastically saying, oh my gosh, this again? but rather this one and all the other ones bought, paid. I purchased them with my blood. What if you heard him in the other room tenderly speaking about the pain he feels in your pain? What would that do to you? 
My guess is it would wash you over with a sense of calmness, with a, a deep abiding confidence. It would make you want to swing open the door to the other room and run in and say, you do know, you do see, you do care. You're not far off. You're interceding for me. Why does Jesus have to continue to intercede for us? Because we continue to sin and continue to suffer. In his praying for you, Jesus is applying his work on the cross and in his resurrection to your life moment by moment. He never neglects to intercede for you. But not all. That's not all. Not only do we have Jesus praying for us in heaven, we also have the Spirit praying for us in our hearts. This is some good Trinitarian theology for y'all right here. Ready for this? Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, not our adequacy, not our strength, not our knowing what to do, not our competence, not our having it all together. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. It goes on to say, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so listen, this is the motive to become an intercessor because our prayers join in the chorus of the Son and the Spirit before the Father. Let me tell you a story to, to close. This story comes from a, a marvelous book called Dirty Glory by a guy named Pete Gregg, and he says it this way. He tells the story of how um, most of you probably don't remember Super Bowl 42. Now, some of y'all might be, you know, football nuts, and you do. Um, but in February 2008, Super Bowl 42 happened in Phoenix, Arizona. And the story really isn't about who won or lost. It's about a miracle of prayer. But for those of you who would be tempted to Google who won or lost, if I don't tell you, it was the Giants. They won. Okay. I think they beat the Pats. Um, and so this is, this is a, a story really about an accountant named Deb Welch. And Deb Welch made this decision to leave her well-paid job to coordinate a year of 24-7 prayer across the state of Arizona. 24-7 prayer. Churches lining up week after week after week to give themselves to interceding for their city and their state and their nation for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for a whole year. And so just 34 days into this initiative, the Super Bowl was due to touch down in Arizona. So one night, Deb had an alarming dream. She had this nightmare where she saw the stadium filled with blood, and since she took the nightmare seriously, she actually dispatched a small team of, of prayer warriors, if you will, to the stadium to pray preemptively against any disaster the night before the Super Bowl. So on the day of the game, Deb joined almost 100 million viewers watching the biggest sporting event in America. The game passed uneventfully, and she kind of breathed a sigh of relief. But then came a little bit of an embarrassment. <laughs> Why did I make such a big deal out of this dream? It was just a nightmare after all. But I sent these people to go pray in this parking spot and to do this until the news started coming in. Major news outlets across America began reporting that behind the scenes at the Super Bowl, a bloody massacre had been narrowly averted. A disturbed 35-year-old man named Kurt William Havelock was furious about having his permission to open a Halloween-themed horror bar in nearby Tempe, Arizona. Had, he, he mailed a series of threats to media outlets the day before the game. And so these major news outlets all received chilling letters talking about swift and bloody revenge. 
On the day of the Super Bowl, Havelock drove himself to the stadium armed with an AR-15 assault rifle and 200 rounds of ammunition, and he had one and only one note on his person that said, do not resuscitate. Armed to the teeth and intending to kill as many people as possible, this would-be mass murderer unexpectedly experienced something that he would later describe in court as a change of heart. He broke down in tears and he called his dad and he was, his dad said he was sobbing hysterically and said, I've done something terribly, terribly wrong. And eventually Havelock ultimately handed himself into the police without a shot being fired. Listen, he had no way of knowing it, but his car was parked in the exact location that a group of weirdo Christians the night before decided to, to gather in the stadium in order to pray against imminent bloodshed the very parking spot where he had the change of heart. This is real. Intercession works. It matters. It's your calling. Take it up. Join with the chorus of the Son and the Spirit. Bring your prayers before your Father. Call out to him on behalf of your neighbors and your city and your nation and your world. Take up your calling. Let us intercede. Let us live to intercede because Jesus lives to intercede for us. Let's pray.